Some of you may remember from last week that my mom had three big rules for us when we were growing up. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Mom, I still remember them, okay? Last week I shared about my siblings, how they were heathens. They were thieves and liars because they stole that pack of gum at the grocery store. But how I, the favorite child, I'm just a liar, just a liar. Now today I thought I'd be fair with you because last week I talked about them. Today I'll confess and share with you about the time that I broke my mom's rule, do not lie. Now, a few of you parents in the room actually may have heard this story before because this is often the story that I share with kids when they're talking about giving their lives to Christ and becoming a Christian. Because always in that conversation, we talk about sin. And I'll usually share with them one of my earliest memories of when I sinned by lying. It was the week after Christmas. I was in late elementary school. And we are out of school, of course, out on winter break. And I happened to be spending the day with my mamma. And we were taking down Christmas decorations. My job was to go down in the basement, get those Christmas totes, bring them upstairs, and help load everything back into the totes. And for some reason or another, my grandmother had to leave to go make a quick errand. It wasn't very long, just right down the road. But in that time, just like every kid, I got bored and tired of putting away Christmas decorations. So I began looking for something else to do, something I could play with and have fun. And so I found a bouncy ball in the bottom of one of those Christmas totes. And just like every kid, I start bouncing it around the house. And like every young boy, I'm seeing how high I can get it, see if it can hit the ceiling. I remember they had this long hallway running down the middle of their house. So I'm like bouncing this thing down the hallway, see how many times it can hit the ceiling. And uh, you can probably see where the story's going, can't you? At the time, my grandparents had this old tube TV entertainment center all in one thing. If you're over the age of 20, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Most kids at this point in the story, really, they get confused. It's one of these right here. You know what I'm talking about, that tube TV built into an entertainment center. And sitting on top of that was this old antique lamp that had a glass lampshade, something that looked a little bit like this. And if you have ever seen one of these before, you know that that glass lampshade sits on a tiny, thin little rim on top of the lamp. You can see where it's going, can't you? So here I am, the only one in the house, bouncing the bouncy wall ball everywhere. It hits the lamp, and the shade comes falling off the lamp, off the TV, and onto the floor. And just like everyone who breaks something old, I freaked out. I panicked. I'm like, what am I, I going to do? So here I am. I'm picking it up, asking myself, well, what can I do? So I began going through the house, pulling open drawers, opening up cupboards and cabinets, and looking for some glue. Well, my mom and papa didn't have any glue, but they had scotch tape. And so I started taping this old glass lampshade up. Now, I should tell you that when the lampshade fell, it only broke the back half of the lampshade. The front side, it was all still intact. So I'm scrambling around, picking up all the small pieces and taping them back on this lampshade. Finally, I get it looking pretty good. I put it back on that thin little rim. I adjust it in such a way that you can't see it when you're looking at it. And this whole time, by the way, I'm running back and forth to the window to make sure my memo's not coming down the lane but I get everything back in place and I act like nothing ever happened. And I was cleaning up Christmas decorations the whole time. Finally, she gets back from running her errand. And when she got back, she noticed that the broom was out. I think I told her I broke an ornament or something like that and I need to sweep it up. But she never noticed the lamp. She never asked. So I never said anything. This went on for days, weeks, even months. No one noticed the lampshade. No one asked. So I didn't say anything. 
It wasn't until about six months later when my mama and papa decided to get a new TV. They were going to upgrade to another tube TV. And they're moving that old TV out from the wall and they noticed the lampshade, the cracks, and the scotch tape job. They called everyone. They called my uncle. They called my mom to see if she had done it or to ask if one of us had done it. They called my aunt to see if it was her. And I remember my mom asking us if we had done it. And I think I told her something to the extent of, Mom, there's no way I did it. How could I tape something up to look that good? And I'm pretty confident that that very phrase is the reason why they end up blaming my aunt for the whole thing. Because she's a pretty smart gal. She's 10 years younger than my mom, and she was fresh out of college. She was teaching in southern Kentucky at the time. She was a pretty crafty lady, so everyone blamed her. And I kept up that secret and that lie for a long time. And, Mom, I'm confessing for the first time this morning. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It wasn't until several months later that I finally decided to tell the truth. It was a Saturday morning. Mom was sitting on the couch, and I went up to her, and I told her, Mom, I love you. And in her sweet, loving voice, she said, what'd you do? (laughs) So I told her that it was me. I broke the lampshade, that I was throwing the bouncy ball around the house, that hit the lampshade, fell off, and I taped the whole thing back together. But here's the best thing about that whole story. Even after my grandparents had found out that the lampshade had been broken and taped back together, even after they got their new TV, they still kept the lamp and the lampshade for quite some time after that. I guess the tape job was just that good. So there you go. You get the ugly, honest truth about Dylan, the time he lied and covered it up in scotch tape. (laughs) I said I usually share that story with kids when they're talking about becoming a Christian because a huge part of the conversation about accepting Christ is recognizing that we've done wrong, that we've sinned, and that we need forgiveness for that sin and a forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. So in this conversation about becoming a Christian, we'll talk about sin, and I'll usually ask with them to share with me if they've ever sinned, and then I'll share with them this story so that they can understand and know that all of us have and all of us do sin. But once we get into that conversation about sin, we'll talk about how sin is a violation against God, that when we sin, first and foremost, it's against God. We're breaking his rule, his laws, but also our sin separates us from God. But then we'll also talk about how that sin causes hurt, both in others' lives and also in our own life. I'll usually share with them the story of the lie about my, the lamp and how I hurt people, even in that instance. I hurt my aunt because I let her take the blame for the wrong that I had done. I hurt my grandparents and my mother because when I lied, what I was doing was failing to be honest and upfront with them. But I also hurt myself. It hurt my ability to be someone who could completely and thoroughly be trusted Now that I had lied and they had found out, next time something happens, it's going to make it a little harder for them to believe me. Now that story and that truth that I'm trying to get kids to see when I share my story about the lamp, it's more than just a cute little illustration or point. It represents a truth, a truth in a much larger picture about sin in general and lying in particular. In our series, we have said this over and over again, and it is still true. Sin leads to suffering every single time. Even if it's a harmless white lie, as a kid, it still leads to suffering. Now, for nine weeks now, we've been looking at each of the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses and the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And since it's week nine, we come to the ninth command. And so, Exodus 20, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In verse 16, we get the ninth command. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. In other words, you shall not lie. Now, to give a false testimony is to mislead, deceive, manipulate, or distort the truth through your words, actions, or even a lack of words. 
And so that means telling half-truths, not saying anything, embellishing, exaggerating, fraud, cheating, deceiving, smokescreens, or even spinning the truth. See, the ninth command is about not giving false testimony is really a command about being truthful to others. And today, we're going to explore that. We're going to look at this command and also get to the heart of this command. But before we do, we need to understand why this command leads to suffering. As I teach kids regarding sin, I want you to catch this too this morning. Sin is first and foremost always against God. But also, sin brings suffering and hurt to others. And and when it comes to lying or breaking the ninth command, this too is a sin against God. And by this, I don't mean just when we're trying to lie to God. I mean even when, we're try, or even when we're lying to someone else, this still is a sin against God. Over in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 6, in verse 19, it sa- or, sorry, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, uh, sorry, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So two times we are told that, or two times lying is mentioned as something that God hates. A lying tongue and a false witness who pours out lies. One book back in the book of Psalm, we're told that sin is against God. You may remember the great King David. He had sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed in battle and then lied to others about the whole thing. And then Nathan, the prophet of God, comes and confronts David in his sin. And finally, David cries out to God in prayer. And we get this prayer that David says to God. He says in Psalm 51, 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David realized that although he sinned with Bathsheba, although he killed her husband, although he lied to others, his sin was ultimately one against God. So why is this sin of lying so detestable to God? Why is it such an affront to him personally? Well, the answer is told throughout the scriptures, but I want us to look at a few passages in particular this morning. First is Numbers in chapter 23 and verse 19, and it says this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Two times in the New Testament, we get a similar truth. One is in that small book of Titus, the epistle, which says this, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And then also over in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at this passage more fully this morning, but Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says this, it is impossible for God to lie. So each of those three passages are teaching us a deep truth about God. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to do so. Some have rightfully said that the day that God lies, he ceases to be God And the reason why is because God is the complete opposite of falsehood, of lying, of giving false testimony. God is truth. It's who he is. And this means that he always has been and always will be holy, loving, and truthful. He is unchanging in his purpose and in his commitments. He will ever be true to his word and to his promises. Look at these great truths from the Old Testament. One is in the book of Psalm. I love this. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Or back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and in verse 4, it says, He's the rock. His works are perfect. On all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no, no wrong, upright and just is he. God has never said anything that hasn't come true. 
He hasn't promised anything that he hasn't kept. He's never made a covenant where he didn't uphold his end of the deal. He will never misguide, mislead, or obstruct the truth. And in making you and I image-bearing creatures, that means that he shared a part of himself with us. We were meant to reflect who he is. And since one of his attributes of his nature is being someone who is truth, it means that you and I were made to reflect the truth. So when we misguide, mislead, distort, cheat, create spin, hide, deceive, stay silent, or even speak half-truths, we're going against who God created us to be. But more importantly, it's attacking his very nature. It's as, if, it's as if we're saying to him, God, we know that you're truth. I even know that you made me to represent truth. But in this moment and in this lie, I don't care who you are and I don't care who you made me to be. This lie and this choice is better. So lying or giving false testimony is first and foremost a sin against God because God is truth. God is truth. That's who he is. But if you've ever been lied to, you know that this kind of sin is not just one against God. After all, the ninth command is that we don't give false testimony to our neighbor. So this is why when we break the ninth command, we also cause pain and suffering in the life of others. We said this truth last week, that God throughout the scriptures is always concerned about the other, our neighbor. It's why we said kingdom living is always about the other. And that means that God cares not just about our vertical relationship with him, but also our horizontal relationships with one another. And because God is truth and he stands in truth, because he's one who cannot lie, in his infinite wisdom, he knows that falsehood not only misrepresents him, it also hurts and breaks relationships here down on earth. In my childhood story of lying, my lie caused hurt in others' lives, first to my mom, my grandparents, but also to my aunt. Now, I'm not saying my aunt's entire reputation was ruined with this one lie, but now, because I lied, I allowed her to take the blame, and in that lie, I allowed a wedge to be driven in the relationship between her and her parents. Because of my silence, they now had to fight over who was telling the truth. But furthermore, I chipped away at that image of God that was given to my aunt. Because of this lie, she now had this internal battle of whether or not her words could ever be trusted. She never said that. I just know that to be true. When someone lies about you, you now wonder, can, I, can my words ever be trusted again? And that's just a little white lie over a simple lampshade covered in scotch tape. What about when a husband lies to his wife? When he's been out breaking the marriage covenant, not keeping his word or marriage sacred? What about when he's covering up the truth? You think some pain and suffering happens when the truth finally comes out? Absolutely it does. A marriage ends, an entire family's destroyed. Or what about when people deceive through their post on social media? It looks like their life is great, picture perfect according to their Facebook feed. But behind the camera, behind the post, it's far from great. And we all know, we've all heard the effects that this is having on our world. It creates a false sense of what reality is like in our world. And everyone knows that life is not picture perfect, and yet no other point in history have people been so depressed and feel like they're missing out on something. It's all because of this false reality that we give people. Lying, deceiving, scheming, hiding, creating spin, and giving false testimony will always lead to suffering. And the results of all that, the result of lying to others is that it leads to distrust in our relationships. Lying, deceiving, manipulating, speaking half-truths, creating smoke screens and spinning the truth, it will only cause us to continue to distrust one another. Take a parent, for example. A parent who lies to their child once. Now, if it's only once, it's easy for that child to forgive and forget and keep trusting their parent. 
But if that parent continues to fail to come through and makes hollow promises and speaks empty words, eventually that ongoing lying is going to cause that child to distrust that parent and perhaps even all authority figures. Or back to that husband who continues to lie to his wife about why he's been out so late, why there's unexplainable charges to their credit card, why he's been so distant lately. It leads to her distrusting him. And can I say this as a side note? What a terrible place it is to be in a marriage relationship where you can't trust your spouse anymore. Be honest to one another. But even when our politicians and governing officials, when they continue to make promises, when they run on certain issues, but then they make behind-the-door deals that once elected, they never really address those issues, all it leads to is voting citizens not trusting our government. Or when we have a friend who promises to show up to help, or to keep a secret, and yet they continually don't show up. They continually fail to help. They continually uh, share with others what you shared with them in confidence. That friendship, it won't last. And why? Because there's no longer any trust in the relationship. And Jesus, in his wisdom, knows this. And so he wants to get to the heart of the issue. And we've seen that several times in this series, that every command, Jesus really is just wanting to get to the heart of it. And so we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, what is it that oaths and swears have to do with telling the truth and not lying? I know it seems strange at first, but you have to understand the purpose and the meaning of why we make oaths and swears. And once you'll do, you'll understand that it really has a lot to do with telling the truth and not lying. Now, I know oaths and pledges and swears, they're not very common in our world today. About the only time you see them is whether it's in the courtroom scene or when someone's being sworn into a political office. In court, you are swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God. And also, when someone is being sworn into a political office, they are solemnly swearing to uphold the duties of the office given to them. And both in the courtroom system and when taking the oath of office, usually the member places their hand on the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, and also in first century Greco-Roman world, oaths, swears, they were very common. They happened in everyday life. But the purpose of oaths, both then and even now, is to bolster someone's claim, to enhance the credibility of what you're saying. The idea was that if someone was going to make a claim against you, or they were wanting to promise you something, they would make an oath or swear by something greater than themselves to show that their word and their promise, that their claim was credible. They were willing to swear by it. Now, Jesus recognized the kind of faultiness of the kind of swearing and oath-making that was happening in the first century. See, the first problem that the Jews had, and part of what Jesus is addressing here in this passage, is that whether you swear by God or by the things that represent God, like heaven, Jerusalem, earth, even our heads, both of them can lead to misrepresenting God. But really, Jesus wanted to get to the heart of the issue which was not just about swearing or even what you swore by. The heart of the issue was about telling the truth because Jesus recognized that the only reason we have to swear in the first place is our words can't be trusted unless there's some high stake in the game. It's why even in our court systems today, if you're caught under oath to be lying, you're guilty of perjury. There's a severe punishment for it. 
See, if everyone only spoke the truth all the time and never lied, we wouldn't have to have oaths, swears, and promises. But the reality is the world is guilty of being full of lies. We all lie, and so we're all untrustworthy. And that's why oaths were even needed in the first place. But what Jesus envisions for his kingdom and for those who are part of his kingdom is that they would speak the simple, honest truth. It's why he says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Jesus envisions that in his kingdom, those who are part of it would be so truthful that there'd be no need to swear or make oaths. Their words would be enough. They wouldn't have to swear on something higher than themselves. That when they say they'll do something, they do it. When they make a promise, they keep it. When they say they'll be there, they are there. And when they speak something, it's going to be the truth. And so kingdom living is about a commitment to the truth. Kingdom living is about a commitment to the truth. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be committed to the truth? How can we do that? Well, I have three things for us this morning. First, for those of us who've submitted to the kingdom of God, to be committed to the truth means that we need to speak the truth. If you were here last week, you'll remember us looking at this Ephesians chapter 4 text. And in it, uh, we saw that Paul actually flips the eighth command on its head. But he doesn't just do that with the eighth command. He actually does that with the ninth command as well. But you may remember that what Paul was doing here is that he was telling us that as a result of the salvific work of Jesus on the cross and the renewing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, a transformation or a change happens. And one of the things that changes is that we begin to speak the truth. Look at this in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So already we can see from this verse that to speak the truth means that we do not lie. We should put off falsehood of all its various forms, whether that be deceit, guile, cunning, pretending, misleading, boasting, flattery, cursing, verbal ambushing, and malicious and wrongful speeches of all kind. See, for Jesus and his followers, it means that we should uphold to the smallest letter the ninth command, that our integrity be so sound, above reproach in every way, that our words can be trusted. I love the way Warren Wiersbe puts it in his commentary. Jesus taught that our conversations should be so honest and our character so true that there be no need to have crutches to get people to believe us. Jesus wants us to be honest people, full of integrity, And he desires the kind of integrity that's going to tell the truth, whether it's going to get us ahead in life or not. But speaking the truth also means that we need to share the truth. We know this to be true about Jesus. In John 14, 6, we're told that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And we know that Jesus has given us the great commission, and that means that he has made us ambassadors and heralds of him and his message of salvation. And so that means that he has called us to share the truth that we've heard with others. He intended that the very heartbeat and lifeblood of the church would be that they would take the message of truth that they've heard and share it with others. It's why Paul tells us in Romans 10, starting in verse 14, How then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches or tells them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. It takes you and I sharing the truth in order for someone to hear the truth so that they can believe the truth. But this morning, I can't say that we should just speak the truth or even that we should share the truth without saying that when we speak the truth, we should speak the truth in love. Because the truth, when it's spoken without love, is not the entire truth. 
I love the way Paul commands us to speak to one another. He says in Ephesians 4.15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So to be committed to the truth first means that we need to speak the truth. We need to stop lying, start sharing the truth, and speaking the truth in love. The second way you and I can be committed to the truth is when we live in the truth. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us about a spiritual armor that every Christian has at their disposal that they can use to help fight temptation and sin and in turn live for God. And among one of those pieces of armor is truth. Listen to what it says, Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. It's as if the idea that Paul has here in mind is the truth holds everything else up. To live in the truth means that we would not surround ourselves or with or believe lies and falsehood of gossip. Instead, we should rejoice with the truth. That means we celebrate the truth and when the truth is spoken. We hate falsehood, love truth. After all, we're told that one of the uh, things that love does is rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, the love chapter, it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So part of what it means to love others is that we rejoice with the truth. Don't get caught up in falsehood and lies and and gossip and uh, be misled. Rather, love and rejoice in and with the truth. But also, when we live in the truth, it means that we need to contend for the truth. In the small epistle to Jude, we're told this in verse 3. I love this verse 2. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints or to God's holy people. See, a part of what you and I as Christians need to do is contend for our faith. And the faith that we hold to, the faith within the scriptures, that is truth. And so we need to contend for the truth. So to contend for the truth means that we need to fight for it, work to figure it out, give our devotion to searching it out. I love the way that Paul asked the young preacher Timothy to contend for the truth. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You've probably heard that phrase before, right? To rightfully divide or to correctly handle the word of truth. Well, that means that a part of a huge responsibility as a preacher, but really to anyone who's speaking God's truth, is that we need to be careful to make sure that we're not misleading or misusing God's truth. That we have done our due diligence to make sure that we've separated truth from error, right from wrong, sound doctrine from false doctrine, and that this presentation of the word is an exact representation of what God intended. And so this means that we present the whole truth of the scriptures, not just the parts we like, not just the favorable things, but everything that God has said to be true. But when we contend for the truth, it also means that we'd be willing to accept it when we were rejecting it before. In other words, when you've been confronted by another Christian speaking the truth in love and your sin has been exposed, the word clearly identifies that your actions are wrong. To contend for the truth in this instance means that you'd allow your pride to get out of the way, you'd willingly acknowledge that you've done wrong and commit to changing your actions. A commitment to the truth means that we need to live in the truth, rejoice in it, and contend for it. Finally, to be committed to the truth means that we need to model the truth. I'm talking about living it out. And what is speaking the truth, after all, without backing it up with actions and deeds? 
The Apostle Paul tells the young preacher Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, for if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is exhorting Timothy, and really all of us, to pay close and careful attention, not just to right thinking and right belief, but also to right living. Both of them are equally important. And so this means that we need to live out the truth. We don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk. Model the truth, represent the truth well. Be full of integrity, above reproach in every way, honest in your words and actions and dealings with others. And if we stay committed to the truth, if we continue to speak the truth, we continue to live in the truth, if we continue to model the truth, when we stay committed to the truth, that's when trust can be rebuilt in relationships. We need to make sure we're not creating spin, that we're not telling half-truths, deceiving, lying, or giving false testimony about ourselves or others. Rather, we ought to be people of our word, honest, always speaking the truth. The brother of Jesus, James, he nearly quotes Jesus when he says this in James 5 and verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is simply yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. He's telling us just to speak, live in, and model the simple, honest truth. But here's what I want us to catch this morning. It's only within the Christian faith, only within Christianity, And only within the scriptures do we find the real truth. No other worldview, way of life, system, or operation of thinking, no other lifestyle offers the security and trust in the truth than that of the Christian faith. And here's why. It's not because Christians are overly truthful people. We all know the reality and stories of Christian individuals who lie, hide, deceive, cheat, and tell half-truths. We even know stories in the reality of Christian communities, churches who deceive, lie, hide, cheat, create, spin, and manipulate. Now, Christ called his followers to rise above all that. It's what we're supposed to be moving toward, but the reality is we don't always come out telling the truth, do we? But even still, despite its members, the Christian faith is still the only ultimate source of truth. And it's not because of us. Rather, it's because of the person we place our trust in, the God of truth. I want you to listen this morning to this passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, starting in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hopes set before us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now you may be familiar with that Old Testament story that God made a covenant and a promise with the patriarch Abraham. And this promise that was Abraham in his old age, God would give him a child and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You can read about it in Genesis 12. But also this promise included that through Abraham's bloodline, all nations on earth would be blessed. Now, Abraham had to wait for the promise of a child. He had to be patient. 
But God was faithful and God came through and kept his covenant to Abraham and Abraham had a son, even in his old age. But this promise that through Abraham all nations on earth would be blessed, it wasn't just a promise for Abraham. It was a promise for everyone in the world. See, once Jesus came, a lot of people began to pick up on this idea that this promise was for everyone Because you can look in the scriptures and see that it was through Abraham and Abraham's lineage that Jesus, the Savior of the world, came. It won't take you very long if you begin reading the Bible from the beginning to get to those genealogies. You know, those parts of the Bible where it talks about so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so. Great bedtime reading, by the way. Yeah, those, part of the purpose of those, part of the reason we have those is so that you and I can see that God was being faithful that he wasn't lying, that he was telling the truth, that this promise that God made to Abraham long, long ago became fulfilled in Jesus. See, you can trace the lineage. Matthew chapter 1 does a good synopsis for us. You can trace the lineage all the way back to Abraham. God was telling the truth. He wasn't lying. He was being faithful. Now, our passage in Hebrews has told us that when people swear, they swear by something higher than themselves. It's why when someone's sworn into office, they put their hand on the Bible And we've already said that that swearing on something higher than yourself, more trustworthy and true than yourself, is supposed to raise and bolster the weight of your claim. But God, when he made a covenant and he made a promise to Abraham, he also wanted to make an oath with Abraham. And so Hebrews 13, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 13 says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. And the purpose was that he wanted to show to Abraham, that both in the promise and in the oath, you could trust him. Now, God didn't have to make an oath with Abraham. He didn't even have to give a promise, but he did. And this is what I love about this whole thing. It says this in verse 17, but because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for him to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hopes that before us may be greatly encouraged. God wanted to give you and I two unchangeable things on which we could count on and put our trust in. And what's even better is that this promise and this oath, it comes from God. Remember, our passage says it comes from the God who cannot lie. It's impossible for him to do so. So when God made this promise and God swore this oath, he couldn't lie about it. It would go against his nature, who he is, someone of truth. And here's what I want us to remember and catch, that the covenant promise and the oath that God made with Abraham wasn't just for Abraham. It was for everyone in the world. And that promise and that oath is an anchor. Verse 19 tells us we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The we here means me and you. We have this hope as an anchor. And the hope is in the same promise and the same oath that God made to Abraham long, long ago that through his descendants, all nations on earth would be blessed. And indeed they were. Because as our text goes on to say, and we know to be true, our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the hope that we have is that Jesus went before us on our behalf to serve as our high priest forever. The job and the role of a high priest, by the way, is to offer up atonement for the sins of people. And that's exactly what Jesus did with his body. He, through his death on the cross, offered up an atonement for the sins of the whole world. 
And that means that he, through his death on the cross, made right our relationship with God, which we, through our sin, destroyed. And this is the hope that Hebrews calls an anchor for the soul, something you can put your trust in. It's a promise that God made and an oath that he swore. And remember who he swore that oath by? Himself. And that's why the Christian faith and truth is so amazing. Because we know that our salvation doesn't come from us. Indeed, there's nothing you or I could do to earn our salvation. It doesn't come from our own efforts, works, or our good deeds. Salvation comes from God. The God who cannot lie. And so when he tells us that salvation has come, that it's been paid for in full at the cross, and that as a result, you and I can draw near to him, it means that we can believe his word and trust in his promise. I love what we're told over in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us have confidence. Let us hold unswervingly to the truth and to the God of truth. This is why I love our faith, because it's an anchor, something we can hold on tight to. See, every other worldview, religion, and system and way of life, it doesn't offer this kind of truth or this kind of security. Every other system and worldview tells you and I a lie about how we can get to heaven. The truth is, God has come down to you to offer you salvation. That's the anchor. And I love that our faith has a truth that is grounded, that's eternal, and something we can hold on tight to. Because you know the reality, our world needs some truth these days. It's getting harder and harder to figure out who to believe, who to trust, when someone's lying, what the truth is after all. And this is why I turn to the God who cannot lie. He's the anchor. See, the truth found within the Christian faith, the truth we have, the truth that God revealed to us, is the gospel. And the gospel says this, and I'm going to be quoting the words of Timothy Keller. The gospel says we're so evil and sinful and flawed that Jesus had to die for us. We're so lost that nothing less than the death of the divine Son of God could save us. We're so loved and valued that he was willing to die for us. The Lord of the universe loves us enough to do that. So the gospel humbles us into the dust and yet at the same time exalts us to the heavens. We are sinners but completely loved and accepted in Christ at the same time. The gospel, it reveals the truth about who you and I are. We're sinners. We've done wrong. We've caused suffering in this world as a result of our actions. But the gospel also reveals the truth about how God sees you as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross. 100% completely forgiven. It's why this morning and with my entire life, I affirm that the ultimate truth is the gospel and it comes from the God who cannot lie and so that means that you and I can trust it. The ultimate truth is the gospel and it comes from the God who cannot lie so you and I can trust it. 
We all need something we can trust in. We need an anchor that is firm and secure, something that we can tie onto that's going to help us navigate us in this life. And I believe with everything in me this morning that that is the gospel truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are truth. It's who you are. You cannot lie. You cannot deceive, misguide, distort the truth. You are unchanging in your nature. You've always kept your promises. You've always been faithful and true. And God, we give you thanks this morning because you've given us the truth as a free gift to be received by faith. And God, I pray that as a result, we would be committed to the truth. That we would speak it, live in it, and model it. We're needing your help, the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do that. But God, help us to represent you well, to be made and continue to be recreated in the image you made us in in the first place. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, our living hope, the anchor. Amen.